with you this morning. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, as we continue our sermon series through this letter to the Hebrews. If you do not have a Bible, you hopefully should see one in the seat beside you or underneath the seat in front of you, and we refer to those as our pew Bibles. And if you did not come with a Bible today and you, in, you are in need of one, please see that as our, our gift to you. Take that home with you, please. This morning, we are looking at verses 18 through 24. Uh, my care group asked if we were going to make it all the way through the chapter, and I don't think so this Lord's Day. There's just too much here, and we're thankful that it's God's holy word so full of truths um, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we, we ask that we would be illuminated and be able to see the glories found in this particular passage. So with your Bibles open, I want to invite you to follow along as I read from God's Word. Starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festive gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hear the word of the Lord. Now that may have sounded like um, it came out of nowhere, some details that you may not have been familiar with. Really, if, if you um, open up your Bible to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19 is the context in which the details that we were given of this mount, Mount Sinai, and God giving of his law in the Old Covenant, that was all taking place, and these details are pulled from that particular chapter of God's holy word. We're going to get into that in a moment, but first I want us to think about a little story that happened in 1986. Texas gym dealer Roy Whitestein was pawing through a Tupperware bowl of cheaply priced rocks at a mineral show in Arizona when he came across a lavender gray potato-sized stone that to him looked a bit special. He said, you want $15 for this? Asking the amateur collector who it belonged to, that collector responded, I'll tell you what, I'll sell it to you for $10. In 
it's not as pretty as some of the other ones that I have, so you can take it. And so Wettstein walked away with the world's largest star sapphire that very day in 1986, later valued as high as $2.28 million. He planned to sell the 1905 carat bargain in its uncut form for $1.5 million and put the profits in trust for his two sons, which had each given him $5 to take to this particular show, and so those sons were set for life. Here's the deal. The dealer that day did not know what he possessed. He had not a clue of the value of that lavender gray potato-sized stone. And you may disregard things that you don't know the value of, may let them go for far less than they're worth. And if you remember, if you were with us this last Lord's Day, we've been working through this chapter, and at the end of our passage, Esau was introduced to us, and it came in the form of a warning. Esau did just that. He didn't appreciate the value of his birthright, which entitled him to blessings beyond description, and he traded it for a bowl of stew. Now, this all is tying together for the original recipients of this letter and for us to hear this morning. The incredible foolishness that the author is wanting these people to hear because under the threat of persecution, hardship, trials of various kinds, they also were tempted to abandon Christ, the one who is superior over all things, invaluable, to trade or give away Christ, abandon Christ, and return to the Jewish faith in a sense, for a brief period maybe of worldly security that they might have obtained by doing this, they were willing to barter with the eternal Son of God. I think as we work through this chapter, that really is the main thrust that, by God's grace, I want us to wrap our minds and our hearts around the value, the inestimable inestimable worth of Christ Jesus our Lord. There are two mountains presented to us in this passage, and the author does this in order to help us understand that if you're running to the Mount, Mount Sinai and away from Mount Zion, you are abandoning Christ. You are abandoning the treasure which you have in him and him alone. Now again, this comes in the context of the difficulties of this life and as believers, what we're called to be about, running this race that is set before us. The four in verse 18 of our passage shows that the passage that we're looking at this morning, these verses, support the preceding call to encourage those who are, who are discouraged, those who are weary and faint-hearted to remind them that the Christian life, if you recall where we were last Lord's Day, was never actually meant to be easy. And that is on purpose because God, in order to produce in us what we cannot do in ourselves, applies pressure in all different ways in order to accomplish his purposes in our life. 
And so there's a need for endurance in this life. We are to look to Jesus who finished the race and who helps us run the race. To remember that discipline is actually evidence of his love for us. It is evidence of our sonship. It is not cruel fate or a vengeful God seeking some kind of revenge upon us when we face trials and hardships that come our way. No, God disciplines those whom he loves. Remember, he is treating you as a son. And to pursue peace and holiness is what we also heard about. To reject the infecting influences that the world would offer that would lure us away from our allegiance to Christ our Lord. However difficult the race may be, hear this, it is worth it. Know what you possess in Christ Jesus. And so these two mountains before us, Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the establishment of the old covenant, is what's first described to us. And so we are to pick up on this huge contrast between these two mountains in order to truly understand what we possess in Christ. When God comes down to Sinai, there is no one, nothing that can withstand his holy presence. The, the main emphasis is to reveal the holiness of God. This account found in Exodus 19 gives a glimpse into the glory of our holy God. From that perspective, we see, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, the seriousness of our sin. And so this description, this first mountain is touchable, terrifying, and trembling. The noise is something that I really don't think that we can quite understand or even imagine. Audibly, Sinai stunned the people of Israel. The, the, the sound sorry, of a trumpet, which grew louder and louder, and the very voice of God thundered so mightily that the Israelites pleaded. They pleaded with God that they would no longer directly hear from him, but somehow, some way, have a mediator to speak on his behalf. They were, they were asking for Moses, someone else, something else to, to convey the glory of God to them because it was too much. The voice of God was of such a nature that instead of asking him to continue to talk to us, to speak to us, they begged him to be silent. Now, please hear this. This isn't because God is evil. It's because the people are evil. Now, I also want us to ponder about this. Maybe you're having a hard time kind of diving in. I, I encourage you to read through Exodus 19 because it, it lays out this in full, all that was happening when God visited the mount, Mount Sinai. Sinai, sorry. And in and, and thinking about this voice, you may encounter others and you yourself may have once said this, I just want God to speak to me. I don't hear from him. I want him to speak to me. Anyone who claims that God has spoken to them or appeared to them, if you understand who God is and his holiness, they would no longer even be with us. They would be consumed by fire 
outside of having a mediator. And so that actually clears up quite a few stories that you may have heard from other people that I, I heard from God. And they have no, no context of Jesus Christ, the mediator, hearing from the word of God that has been given to us. No, no, I heard directly from God. Just to kind of put that to rest, if that were so, they would have been consumed on the spot. This is to help paint this picture of what was happening on Mount Sinai. The mountain became dangerously holy because of the presence of God. So much so that no human or animal was permitted to even touch the mountain. We're told that if that violation occurred, they would be executed. They would be stoned. There are no exceptions to entering into the presence of God. As we heard in Sunday school this morning, not even the Mother Mary has this access to the Father outside of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is to help us understand who we are by nature. By nature, we're all blind to the extent of our sin before a holy God. We, we compare ourselves to the murdering cartel south of the border that we hear about, child traffickers, and when we start to compare ourselves to those type of people, we think, I've got my faults, sure, but compared to them, I'm not even close, not even in the same realm of evil or sinful as they are. We know that God is holy, but we don't truly grasp what that means. And this imagery of the first mountain helps us see the holiness of God. When the law comes in and shows us God's absolute holiness, we need to actually respond like Isaiah in Isaiah 6-5, who said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah himself did not fully grasp how unholy he really was until he saw how holy God was. The instant he saw God's holiness, he was aware of his sinfulness. That's where this passage begins, but I want you to see the way that he begins verse 18. For you have not come to that mountain. That's not where you have come. Verse 22, but you have come to a different mountain. Now remember, this is, he's speaking to people who have experienced the grace of God poured out through the Lord Jesus Christ. They are ones who are approaching God through redemption found only in the Son so that he speaks to them in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in the festive gatherings and so on, and we'll, we'll dig into that. But I want you to see this stark difference between the first mountain and the second. The new covenant that Jesus inaugurated changes the location in which the people encounter the presence of a holy God. 
It's not on a mountain that may be touched anywhere physical on this earth. Believers in Jesus now look to a Jerusalem above, Mount Zion, a a type, a heavenly reality of the, the physical type that we saw, actually, that you see even to this day in the Holy Land. This is speaking of an invisible realm that without the eyes given, the spiritual eyes to see, those outside of Christ can't even fathom the way in which believers can approach this holy and righteous God. God's people no longer identify with the place that God gave his law, but with the place where that law was fulfilled. When we go to Mount Sinai, which is the law of God, the old covenant, it is there that you understand without a mediator, we're just like the people of Israel that, that should rightly cry out, please stop speaking. I cannot even bear your presence because of my sin. There is glorious news Good news offered here and the author saying, remember, that's, that's not where you now approach. You're approaching Mount Zion. And this approach is radically different. By God's grace being poured out upon you who deserves no entrance into God's presence, now have full access because of the work of the Son. So these two mountains, Sinai and Zion, At Sinai, there was gloom and doom. Everything says, stay away, don't draw near, you are not worthy to be close to God. And then at Mount Zion, there is joy and there is freedom. Everything says on this mount, come close, draw near. Christ, by his blood and the forgiveness that he has purchased on your behalf, behalf has made you worthy to enter into God's presence. Now, please hear me this morning. The route to Zion is actually through Sinai. The way in in which we get to this glorious mount is first understanding the depth of our sin, how far short we fall from God's glory, how as we look upon his law, we realize that No one is worthy. All have fallen short. And all are condemned before him and in need of that mediator. So in order to get to this mount, you've got to first pass through Sinai. And the question this morning is, have you? Have you ever stood, so to speak, before this holy God and taken account of your life? worked through the Ten Commandments, his holy law, and honestly evaluated how far you fall short of his glory. James says that if you have sinned in chapter 2, in any way you have actually completely disobeyed his law in full. You are condemned. Has that ever even been an exercise in your life? you need to understand that Mount Zion will not be a place that you long for until you understand your need for it and what has been offered through Christ and Christ alone. 
And so wherever you find yourselves, the original audience may have been facing exclusion from their community, their land, their possessions, but in Christ, they and we have access to the heavenly city of God. This city is the home for which the saints of old that we read in chapter 11 hoped for, they longed for, and that lasting city for which the new covenant believers still long to see. Yet even now as we gather in worship, as we are gathered in worship now, we have come to it already. That's the beauty of this passage. Just like that original opening illustration, do you actually understand what you possess now? There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 6. The prophet Elisha is the main character in this story. And I, I was thinking about it in order to help us understand this, this idea of having spiritual eyes to see and how God, by his grace, gives it to his people. And in order to understand what we possess, what, what, is, re, what is given to us in this passage, we need this. So in 2 Kings 6, this is what's kind of happening, happening in this particular story. There's this king of Syria who is continually getting frustrated because God has helped given insight to Elisha all the plans that, that this king is about to um, partake in and do. And, and so his plans keep getting spoiled. And he catches wind that it's this prophet, Elijah, who keeps telling the king of Israel all that's going to happen, all that's about to transpire. And so his plans are, are getting all messed up. So when the, the uh, king of Syria catches wind uh, that it's Elisha, he finds out where he lives, and we're told that he, visited, he visits him with horses, chariots, and a great army. Now, Elisha has a servant who wakes up really early one morning, and he goes out, and he sees this large army, and he is terrified, and rightly so. And they've come to the prophet's house. Okay, with that in mind, verse 17 of 2 Kings 6 says this, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes, my servant. Open my servant's eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, when that servant woke up, woke up that morning and went out, maybe to have his first cup of coffee, stretch, and he sees this physical army, he is terrified. And yet, the reality of the situation, even in that moment, which Elisha prays that God would help him see, they are surrounded by God's army. That's the kind of spiritual eyes to see what we possess that I pray God would help us see as we look at this passage. We've looked at the first mountain. 
when God visited physically on Mount Sinai and the fear and the holiness and his presence, which no one could come to, then the author of Hebrews is helping believers, the, re, the original recipients and us today, help us understand what it is that's actually happening right now when we gather as the people of God. Just like Elisha's servant needed the spiritual eyes to see, we need the spiritual eyes to see the importance of this right now, brothers and sisters, this gathering on the Lord's Day. What's actually happening right now in the heavenly Jerusalem that we are already participating in. So let's look at these few verses before us. The reality of the new covenant believer being described here is is celebratory and reverent. We see a few things listed of what activities going on. Remember the story of Elisha's servant. He needed God to help him see, and once he saw, that changed everything. First, we are told innumerable angels and festive gathering are surrounding worship of new covenant believers. This is the first time angels have been mentioned since they first appeared in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter to the Hebrews. And what we read in those first few uh, verses of, of, of the first chapter of this book is that the Son, Jesus Christ, is superior to them. Make sure we understand that. He is not a created being like the angels. He is superior to them. And God directed them, angels, to worship the Son. And if you remember, at the end of chapter 1, they, the angels, are actually sent by God to serve and minister to those who are to inherit salvation through the Son. So the innumerable angels, thousands upon thousands, are celebrating as they observe what God has accomplished through his Son in this great plan of redemption. So the heavenly hosts, the angels, are praising and worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father right now. That is happening. We just don't have the spiritual eyes to see it as we gather as God's people and worship our King. Then, We've got a description of human worshipers being described under two titles. The first, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And then secondly, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The assembly of the firstborn. Now, in the original language in Greek, that is in the plural Now, we know, as we've been reading through this letter, that there is only one singular firstborn, and it is Jesus Christ and him alone. But here, we're told in verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So we've got to to pull together our, our biblical understanding of what's going on here and understand that if you have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, 
you have been united with him. You are in union with the Son. He is the firstborn, the eternal Son of God. And those whom he has saved, purchased with his blood, are now co-heirs with him. We're told in Hebrews that because of his work in our life, he now refers to us as his brothers, brothers and sisters, those whom he has redeemed. And we are collectively the church. We are the firstborn because we are in union with the firstborn. This is the assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, again, this is for us to be encouraged as we think about what it means to be adopted into God's family, to be called a son of the Most High, and to live this life, run this race that is set before us. We're to be encouraged and built up by these glorious truths that are a reality for us now as we gather in this place here on this Lord's Day. We, by grace, are now in union with the eternal Son of God. That needs to just resonate way upon us in a good, glorious way as we meditate upon what it means to be saved by Christ who are enrolled in heaven. I, I want to just spend a little bit more time here. Their names, our names, are enrolled in heaven, inscribed for eternal life in God's book. This is not a book where your name may once appear and then be erased according to how you have fallen short later in life. No, 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 no. When your name appears in the Lamb's book of life, it is secure and it is not something that you, in your own strength, courage, were able to go and write your own name in. It points to God's sovereign grace. It symbolizes his specific, irreversible, electing love towards individuals. So you are in union with Christ. You are the firstborn enrolled in heaven. So whatever your last week looked like, and you may have lost sight of your identity in Christ, this passage right here before us is to remind us of our identity in Christ. What he has accomplished for us and how positionally we have forever been changed. It has been altered. We are now justified where we were once condemned. We are now adopted into his household when we are once far off rebels doing our own will. That's the first description of these worshipers who are described here. The other perspective given here is a description of worshipers in heaven who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And just to make this as simple as I can possibly make it, any believer who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ and who has died and has gone to heaven, this is good for us to be reminded of. When we die, our physical bodies are laid to rest. Our spirits go immediately and are with our Savior. We, even in that state, long 
for the return of Christ, our resurrected King, who will consummate all things. And in that consummation of all things, the Spirit and the resurrected body will be one day reunited. This is our hope of glory. The new heavens and the new earth will not just be kind of some spiritual, out there, ethereal experience, but actually physical. The way in which we were meant to be from the beginning before the fall, fellowshipping and communing communing with our God in a perfect place where sin no longer exists where pain and suffering are gone, no tears will be shed, and we will be resurrected like our Savior, the firstborn, who is the firstfruits of what's to come in our lives. So when you read of Christ on the third day being raised from the dead by the Father and his interactions with his disciples for those 40 days afterwards before the ascension, you read that and realize It it defies our logic, but we actually will experience resurrection life just like Christ did. Brothers and sisters, this should bring so much encouragement. Right now, those whom we loved who have died in the faith are worshiping the King of Kings. Right here, what we read, spirits of the righteous made perfect. So their status after death becomes escalated upon death and exalted into the heavenly Zion. Between these two descriptions stands the divine object of their adoration. If you've got your Bible still open, God, the judge of all, is mentioned in between those two descriptions. Here, God the Father is in view. Remember, it is a fearful thing to stand before a holy judge. How then can our author assure us that the mountain that we're talking about now, Mount Zion, which we have approached, is different from Mount Sinai? The answer lies in what we see in verse 24. The answer lies in the last two features of this heavenly festival, this heavenly gathering. Here again, verse 24 and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus has inaugurated this new and better covenant and secured its better promises for us now. Forgiveness of sins, transformation of a hardened heart, and access to God. All of those are benefits of the new covenant. The sprinkled blood represents the infinite cost at which our redemption was secured. The sacrifice of the Son. Please hear from Hebrews chapter 9. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
new resurrection life in the presence of God in his holy temple was inaugurated at Jesus' resurrection and ascension and will be consummated at his final return. Please hear this. Only believers who identify with Jesus enter into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Even though they are still with even though they, they still are not without sin, the only access to the heavenly holy of holies, the presence of God, is through Jesus. And, and, and this helps us because we, we have heard about this holy God on Mount Sinai, and the very presence of God will consume us if we are in our sin. Yet his consuming fire is turned aside by the work of the Son. This gives believers boldness to enter into the presence of God. Because we don't do it according to our own merit. We look to the Son. We glory in the Son. It is the Son's work that turns aside the wrath of God. So the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You may have read verse 24 and go, I don't really understand why is Abel coming back into this uh, particular passage and now there's a comparison between the sprinkled blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel. In chapter 11, we read of Abel's acceptable sacrifice and his death, but we don't read about the cause of his death in Hebrews 11. His brother Cain killed him, and there was violence done against him. And now what comes forth is the word the blood of Abel is speaking. And in a sense, you can think of it this way. It is God's accusation against Cain. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I think this is important for us to remember. All blood has a voice. For God is jealous of its preservation, and Abel's blood cries out. This is what it's crying out. Please don't miss this. Punishment and justice. I have been murdered, Genesis 4. My blood is crying out for justice. Something must be done. That is the voice, so to speak, crying out from the first mountain. God is holy. You must not approach because you are sinful. If you touch, you will die. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. There is hope in his blood. His blood is not that proclamation of punishment and judgment or justice. It's forgiveness and cleansing. There would be no forgiveness, there would be no cleansing had he not bore the wrath that is due us. This is what makes approaching Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, so amazing and what we actually are participating in as new covenant believers when we gather to worship. The angels are gathered, the saints who are here, the saints who have gone, God who is the judge and if that was all that was left, we would still be in a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word is also present. Praise be to God. So there, I think, are some important lessons for us to think about as we reflect on these few verses this morning. First is this. What a family that we have been adopted into. In that family, the Lord Jesus Christ is our elder brother, into whose whose image we, by God's grace and the work of the Spirit, are being conformed into. And the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption who assures us inwardly of all the family blessings that are ours. And the Holy Spirit helps, helps us grow more and more to be like our elder brother. Now, please hear me. This is not just wishful thinking. What the author is trying to help us understand is that it's already true for those in Christ right now. May we have spiritual eyes to see. Another is that this explains why we're told not to neglect the meeting of the saints. Hebrews 10, 24, we spent some time not to neglect meeting with one another. If we actually understand what is happening when we gather together on the Lord's Day, we would be foolish enough to miss this event, this festival, this gathering, if we truly had eyes to see what was happening. It is far bigger. It is a far bigger service than we could ever begin to imagine. If you've wondered why we as elders seek to pray for other local churches, it's because it's not just happening here. When we think of the Catholic Church, the universal church, it is global as God's kingdom advances as the word is proclaimed and people are evangelized and converted to Christ. And that is happening around the world right now as, as, as Christians gather to worship the one true king. Also, that our worship takes place simultaneously in heaven and on earth, kind of what I was just saying, has ramifications for how we even conduct our worship. If you come in here flippantly and think it's all about silliness and entertainment, you have sorely missed what we actually read about the reality of what's taking place when the people of God gather to worship this holy and righteous God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 13 that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus is God, meaning God does not change. And so if you're reading about Mount Sinai and you're like, man, I'm so glad that God's so different from the old covenant to the new, God has not changed. He is holy, righteous, and just. You've got to understand that that approach is only possible through the work of the Son. The holiness remains. The wrath is upon you unless Christ has redeemed you by his blood. And so it makes us think, how ought we to worship? God's word informs how we conduct ourselves in worship. And here at Grace Covenant Church, we seek to be faithful to that as best we understand it. It matters what we do when we gather. In New Covenant worship, God does not descend to earth like he did on Mount Sinai 
but we spiritually ascend to heaven. We enter into the company of angels and the saints who have gone before us, worshiping the Lord when we gather with his people every Lord's day. May we have eyes to see. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that we would glory in the new covenant, that you would help us understand what you have accomplished through your Son. And may that stir in us so much joy and praise. When we talk about doxology, worship, that would be our heart cry this morning. And for those who are outside of Christ, may the reality of Mount Sinai land upon them, their minds and their hearts, the reality of who you are. That when you speak, it is of such a holiness that we cannot even bear to hear unless we have a mediator. And may our gaze, both those who are in Christ and outside, be upon the Lord Jesus, and may he receive the praise and worship he deserves. As our Redeemer and our King, we pray. Amen.